And welcome, planners, to the 13th episode of the very unofficial AICP podcast. I am Jonathan Miller, and thank you all so much for joining. I hope everyone enjoyed the weekend and got some relaxing and productive study time in, and got all refreshed for the week and the final stretches before the exam. Uh, Just as a friendly reminder, there is only three days left until registration ends, and another 13 to 27 days until the exam window. Time is running short, and there has just been too much material to try and jam in here, so hopefully you've been able to spend your time on some other topics while we walk through these ones. Um, If you're feeling a bit stuck and you need some study tips to make the most of your time, uh, you can rewind back and listen to episodes three and four, where we talked to Alex and Shane at Planning Certification. Uh, They did have some pretty valuable insight that could be of use. Uh, Let's hop to it though. Our topic today is really just one checklist item, but it is the basis for and spins off to like a dozen others. So to say it's important in the foundation of planning really just doesn't do it any justice. So remember how we talked about how everyone in planning knows about Jacob Reese and his book, How the Other Half Lives? Yeah? Well, no one really seems to know or talk about Henry George in his 1879 book, Progress and Poverty, An Inquiry into the Cause of Industrial Depressions. I mean, after all, it's basically the ideological basis behind a single tax system, land use values, the concept of basic income, and following the logic, just about everything else that spins off of those. Hell, it even sold more copies than any other book not called the Bible in the 1890s, and it was considered irrefutable by people like Winston Churchill and Tolstoy. So yeah, it was pretty important. It was even credited as the start of the progressive era, which sparked a worldwide period of social reform. But enough of the hype train. Let's, uh, let's go back to the start at the beginning. So, Henry George, where to begin? Well, he was born to a lower middle class family in Philly. His dad made a living uh, publishing religious texts and wanted to send old Henry to a religious school, but uh, Henry George was not so fond of that. Uh, Eventually, he finished uh, what schooling he did do and took off as a sailor, of all things, and then ended up in California where he got married and had some kids. And they were broke, like flat broke. The kind of broke where he had decided he was going to go out and beg for food. And once he found someone he was going to ask, he decided that if they said no, he was going to rob them. Uh, Apparently the guy did give him five bucks, so good on the stranger for that. Um, It's not like he was jobless, though, either. Like He was working as a printer for the San Francisco Times, where he wrote an editorial, actually, called what the railroads will bring us uh aside from making the accusation that railroads will only profit those with interests in the railroad uh that also actually became a required reading in schools uh so he was obviously relatively successful uh he even worked up the ranks to be managing editor but financially speaking he was still having a rough go I suppose you could say that it was that state of mind that actually allowed him to make a couple very important observations. One, in trying to make conversation with some guy, 
he had asked what land was worth there. And apparently the guy pointed off into the like way far off distance and he said, I have no idea, but some dude over there will sell you land for a thousand bucks an acre. That experience, according to Henry George, because he recounted this, uh, it made him realize that poverty and wealth were actually very closely related and that with an increase in population, the value of the land increases, but more importantly, it's the people who end up working the land who have to pay for it. Now, the second experience happened when he was visiting the Big Apple. Now, remember at this time, New York was an old city, at least in US terms, and San Fran was much farther behind in the you know developed city game. So with that in mind, he noticed that the poor in New York were actually much worse off than the poor people in California. And it was that observation that really drove home this basic concept of his 1979 book, Progress and Poverty. So what was this book all about? Well, it's really all in the title. Progress and Poverty, an inquiry into the cause of industrial depressions and of increase of want with increase of wealth the remedy and shit that is a mouthful uh basically henry george puts out the idea that it's actually advancements in technology and industry and society that creates abject poverty now he does a much better job explaining it but it goes a little something like this advancements increase the desirability of a location the increased desirability as we all remember from economics class leads to increased land values Subsequently, that means the amount of money that someone can get for leasing or selling the land to those who actually need to use it. Now, once you compound this with speculators, the phenomenon becomes even more exacerbated. It's like amplifying the effect by inserting a middleman with the speculators being the middleman. Think of it this way. As planners, we promote multimodal transportation, at least we should be. So hypothetically, let's say uh, we are in support of the development of a new rail line. Uh, I know that really doesn't happen very often, but bear with me, I'm just trying to make a crystal clear example. Uh, so this new rail line would put a residential area, which is typically underserved within minutes of another neighborhood that has grocery stores and retail, just you know, easy shopping, entertainment, the whole kit and caboodle. Now, according to Henry George's ideals, this rail line increases the social services available to the community, which in turn raises the desirability of the neighborhood, which subsequently increases the inherent value of the land, which translates to higher prices, which means if you want to buy a home there, that's going to be more money. If you want to rent there, also more money. You want to lease a space for your retail business, also more money. Now this is where the speculators come in. They see the opportunity to be slightly ahead of the curve and buy in at the moderately increased prices. And instead of selling, they buy up old buildings and convert them to retail spaces and apartments and rent them out at even higher prices. So this, quote, unearned value, unquote, of the land goes to those who could afford to buy it to begin with, i.e. wealth begets wealth while those who couldn't are forced to pay more money than they originally did to be there, which creates more poverty. The more you think about it, the more it makes sense. Uh, as we all know, and many, many, many articles have written, it is expensive to be poor. Uh, to give you the ultimate effects in his own words, uh, here's a quote that I enjoyed from the introduction in the book. Quote, these new forces, that meaning progress, do not act on society from underneath, 
Rather, it is as though an immense wedge is being driven through the middle. Those above it are elevated, but those below are crushed." Unquote. It's important to note here that when I say advancements, I don't just mean in transportation or infrastructure. Advancements in manufacturing methods uh, increase the demand for products which are manufactured at a location on land, which drives the price. Uh, I tried explaining this to some friends of mine, actually, when complaining uh, about the idea that increases in land values are driving the cost of affordable housing. Land values don't drive housing prices. Housing prices drive land value. Uh, let me explain, and I will try not to be too preachy. Uh, if a particular property has an assumed land use, either through existing zoning, a comprehensive plan, speculative zoning, whatever, that land is priced accordingly. It's just that simple. If I own 10 acres next to a subdivision with a quarter acre lots on it and a road stub to my property, uh, I can reasonably assume that my 10 acres is, at some point, going to have about 30 homes on it. Once you account for right-of-way and open space, of course. This is a typical parcel in a typical suburb on the outskirts of a typical city. Now, those 30 homes, on average, in my typical suburb in a typical city, around where I am at least, might fetch between $300,000 and $400,000. And I will sell my 10 acres at a price which reflects that. Now, let's say hypothetically I'm all utopian and I sell my 10 acres for a third of that value because I want to see more affordable housing. Does that decrease the cost of the housing? Or is it reasonable to assume that the cost of the housing will stay the same price? Right, I would pick the latter too. So bringing that around full circle, advancements in manufacturing make manufacturing more profitable. More profitable manufacturing would make land for manufacturing more expensive, and so on and so on. You get the point. But let's get back to the actual book. So after presenting this hypothesis, he spends a little time debunking some popular ideas on what would reduce poverty before ultimately settling on his own hypothesis. A single tax on unearned land values. Now his reasoning, at least, was twofold. One, the tax would provide an incentive to use the land in a productive way since the value of the tax would be relative to the value of the land. More valuable land would be more expensive and result in a more productive use, which would increase labor, and the need for increased labor would tip the power scales and result in higher wages, etc., etc. As the land uh, creates a bigger benefit, the value of the land is increased and the cycle continues. Ultimately, George said, this tax could provide a basic income to all citizens. Ever heard of basic income, like, you know, in the most recent election? Well, that idea started with progress and poverty. He thought that the increasing values could create a surplus that would then be divided back out among the citizenry. Know what else he said it would stop? Urban sprawl, homelessness, and low-value uses on high-valued land and tenant farming, which sounds like a thing of the past, but it's not. We still have that today. It's important to note here as well that we're talking about a single land tax on the economic rent or unearned value of the land only, not the improvements. So what is economic rent and how is that distinguished from rent? 
uh, economic rent is the difference between rent and the portion of rent which is required to care for the property. Basically, the profits from rent. And according to George, this is assessed based on the location alone. In other words, and George points this out, a vacant city lot will generate the same taxes as a lot of the same size with a mansion on it. Factory or apartments, it doesn't matter, same tax value. The idea was that this tax would create a situation where the best use would emerge. Anyways, this concept brought up by Henry George is sort of the first example we get of what we call value capture. Now, value capture is really just the concept of the public trying to recoup some of the benefits seen by the private landowners due to public improvements. So for example, let's say a developer comes in with a preliminary plan in an ordinary suburb to develop a thousand homes on 500 acres. Pretty typical once you consider roads and open space, etc. The city then turns around and says, sure, but it'll come with $2,000 per home as an exaction fee. That fee is a method of value capture. You're trying to capture some of the value in order to maintain the public services, like roads, schools, infrastructure, etc. Other examples of value capture would be TIFs, tax increment financing, uh, special improvement districts, impact fees, land dedications, public easements, stuff like that. More specifically to this case though, to Henry George, is the idea of the land value tax, a component of property tax since property tax includes the improvement on top of the land. I should also note, Henry George uh, would have actually opposed taxing the improvements because he viewed those as a hindrance to progress. See, he wasn't opposed to progress. He just wanted to make sure that the benefits of progress were equally distributed so that the only real judge of who succeeded and who failed and who was rich and who was poor uh, fell on who worked the hardest and who applied themselves the most. So to quote Henry George again, take now some hard-headed businessman who has no theories but knows how to make money. Say to him, here's a little village. In 10 years, it will be a great city. In 10 years, the railroad will have taken the place of the stagecoach, the electric light of the candle, it will abound with all the machinery and improvements that so enormously multiply the effective power of labor. Will in 10 years interest be any higher? He will tell you no. Will the wages of the common labor be any higher? No, the wages of common labor will not be any higher. What then will be any higher? Rent the value of land. Go get yourself a piece of ground and hold possession. And if under such circumstances you take his advice, you need do nothing more. You may sit down and smoke your pipe, you may lie around like the Lazzaroni of Naples or the Leperos of Mexico, you may go up in a balloon or down a hole in the ground and without doing one stroke of work, without adding one iota of wealth to the community, in 10 years you will be rich. In the new city, you may have a luxurious mansion, but among its public buildings will be an almshouse. So, what did we learn today? Well, Henry George's 1879 book, Progress and Poverty. In short, George puts forth the idea that it's progress that creates poverty and that a single tax on the unearned value of land would be able to replace all other taxes in order to create progress which lifts everyone, not just the already wealthy while pushing down the poor. Hopefully, 
It also gave you a little understanding into how this ends up becoming basically every economic development tool available. And side note, if you haven't put it together yet, Henry George's book, Progress and Poverty, written in 1879, you know, the same year as the Tenement Housing Act of 1879 that tried making tenements livable, but really created the dumbbell tenement. Yes, abject poverty was kind of a thing, and frankly, still is. But just remember that the year that the Tenement Housing Act, which arguably created the most horrible impoverished housing in U.S. history, happened in the same year, 1879, that Henry George published a book on how not to have abject poverty. And there you have it. That is the story of Henry George and his, frankly, history-altering book, Progress and Poverty. If you want to know more about it, which I really do highly encourage, links to all of the information we used to put this episode together is in the show notes. Uh, Again, you can poke around on the internet yourself. The book is actually old enough. You can find free copies online of the whole book. Uh, I don't recommend reading all of the books on the APA list because there's a ton, but this is seriously the foundation for more than you can possibly imagine, and frankly, it still holds true today. For those of you playing along at home, our question last week uh, was, what year was the first old law tenement built? And that would be 1879. It's just the year of this episode. Uh, If you didn't recall or got tripped up, which I hope you didn't, old law tenements are the same thing as dumbbell tenements. It's just two names for the same thing. If you want to play along this week, our question is going to be, what was Henry George's solution to the relationship between progress and poverty? So how, how was he going to solve that? Uh, well, that does it for us today. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, go ahead and email me or send me a message through the website, Instagram, or Facebook, whatever, with any questions, comments, or suggestions. Uh, I am not the best at responding in a timely manner. I apologize about that, but I will get to it. I promise. Uh, I do have a day job, too, you know. Uh, Also, if you haven't already, go on and subscribe for the podcast on whatever platform you're using for podcasts or sign up on the show's website so you can follow along with future episodes, help prepare for the exam, and supplement all of your other study regimens. And go ahead and share this out with anyone you know who might be interested if you feel like it. Uh, Shameless plug time if you do think this podcast would be helpful for our fellow planners taking the exam make sure you share it out and leave a rating uh you know provide that planning benefit to drive a wedge underneath right and lift us all up so make sure you tune in next week uh that one is going to be a little jam-packed with the general land law revision act the forest management act and the sierra club and friend to all environmentalists everywhere john muir Uh, thanks again everyone until next time